Well, I do hope you did have a good Christmas, and uh, maybe some of you have younger children, that kind of magic of, of Christmas morning. You know, my daughter, Addie, she's a, a freshman, and uh, she said that as you get older, Christmas gets kind of depressing. And uh, there is that aspect, right, to, to Christmas as you get older, that that kind of twinkle in your eye, that Christmas morning excitement maybe diminishes um, a little bit. But, you know, I still remember, though, um, Christmas in my household, uh, our Christmas tree was, was downstairs in the, in the family room, and, and uh, I'd usually be the, I was the youngest, so you'd be the first one up and going around and waking everybody up, and my brother telling me, you know, leave me alone, and uh, my parents saying, give us five more minutes, and um, anyway, I'd have to wait in the top of the stairs uh, for everybody to come, and then it was go time, right, and I'd bound down the stairs, and just to be able to see the, the, the packages, the, the gifts there, there was one in particular, I got a, I got a BMX bike, and oh, what a Christmas that was, but uh, it, it was uh, just a great, great experience for me as a kid, but there's always one thing that was required every Christmas morning, and that was after I've played with the toys and un- unwrapped the packages, the, the phone call to my cousin, Chris. And Chris is about the same age as me. And that was kind of a required thing. Every Christmas morning after we'd done all the gifts, we'd call each other and report in. You know, how was your take? Uh, how'd you do? Um, and, you know, I'd tell him about the action figures, the Legos, the Transformers that I got. He'd tell me about all the things that he got. And one thing I noticed is that as he would tell me the things that he received, kind of the the magical glow over my pile of toys began to diminish a little bit. Oh, you got that? Oh, you got, oh. And, and, And the allure of my toys began to go down, and I began to kind of like what my cousin Chris had gotten for Christmas. My contentedness in my toys was not there, and I think we all struggle with that, whether it's a Christmas morning discontentedness or, or maybe just in, in all of life, that uh, we struggle with that contentedness in God and what he has given us. Um, our hearts struggle with this year-round, and actually the word heart appears in the passage we're going to look at today six different times. And this is a passage I, I've taught on a few times in different venues at, at Bethany, and uh, in our passage today, this man's heart leads to an envy of this perceived prosperity of, of people who don't follow God. He looks upon these people who are referred to as wicked in the passage. They're not followers of Yahweh God. And he, he has this perception that they, they really have everything in life. And his heart goes wayward and envies, envies that. So here, here's our big idea for the day. Okay, here's our big idea. As we lift our eyes to the Lord, he gives us a right perspective of himself ourselves and others as we lift our eyes to the lord he gives us a right perspective of himself ourselves and others so as you turn to psalm 73 or look up psalm 73 on your device we're, we're going to see a man who struggled with an idol uh, his name is asaph he was actually a, a worship leader much like what uh, kevin has done for us here this morning and uh, because of time and and covering an entire psalm instead of reading the scripture first i'm going to kind of read it along the way for us, so a little bit different this morning. Here's where I think the passage is taking us today. First, I want us to, to take you through Asaph's struggle with an idol. See how much we can allow idols to take control of our hearts. And second, I want to show you what, ha- what helped Asaph out of this really miserable idol worship. And lastly, I want us to look at the results of gazing upon our glorious God. 
So let's go to our first point for today, and that's, that's the idol of worship from Psalm 73, verses 2 through 14. And I don't mean the idol um, to, to idolize worship, but the, the idol that we, he is worshiping, okay, is what we're looking at here. Um, we're going to try to diagnose Asaph's struggle here. What's the cause of Asaph's struggle? Uh, so let's look at what he's dealing with. I, I was greatly helped by notes from Charles Spurgeon and William Barrick on this passage. Uh, and so as we start, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip over verse 1 and go right to verse 2. You might have noticed that in your, in your notes. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about verse 1 here in a minute, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it for us anyway. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now Asaph does a comparison, but, but as for me, tr- truly God is good to Israel, and, and those Israelites are, are pure in heart, but for me, I'm on a much different trajectory than that. I'm in a much different trajectory than that. Asaph describes himself here like a, a person slipping on a sheet of ice, waffling and stumbling in his spiritual life. So in verse 2, it says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Let me keep reading verses 3 through 7 here. Asaph says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Let me stop there. Asaph, as he's struggling in his spiritual life, looks kind of over the landscape of the world around him and is not really happy with what he sees. He sees those prospering who are not a part of God's people. He calls them the wicked. They, they prosper. And it almost seems like he's insulting them here. They talk about their fatness. That's not an insult, insult here. He's talking about their, their plenty and their, their strength as compared to those who do not have plenty. And you kind of see the deception that Asaph's believing here. They, verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Um, verse 5, they're, they're not in trouble as others are. Um, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Is this not the Instagram world that we live in? Uh, we look over the landscape of the, the internet or social media and we say, wow, that, that family just looks really happy. Uh, maybe you got a, a Christmas card with a, a, a picture of a smiling family. Like, wow, they just, they just look like they have it all together, right? You, you see a post on Instagram, these two friends hugging each other. Wow, they, their friendship is just very, looks like a very sweet friendship. I don't have relationships like that. Maybe we see a, a picture of some people holding some, some red solo cups and their cheeks are rather red as well. And we think, you know, that looks pretty attractive. It looks like they have, no troubles in their lives. Let's go to verse 8. Describing these people more. They, they scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease, they increase in riches. Let me stop us there. We see in verse 8 that they mock 
the righteous. They, they wickedly speak, plotting to oppress the righteous. They, they speak from on high with arrogance. They set their mouths against the heavens almost as enemies of God. No one is safe. Their, their tongue kind of parades around the earth. No one's safe from these, these people. They question God's omniscience. How can God know? Is there any knowledge of the Most High? And they're always at ease. They increase in riches. Do you think that's really true? They're always at ease. You see the deception that Asaph is believing here. Look at verse 13. Asaph says, this isn't worth it. My spiritual life isn't worth it. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So let's, let's diagnose Asaph's struggle here with, with envy or what, what brought about this envy, this behavior. Asaph, bottom line, was wanting what he wanted, right? What would you say he wanted? A, a better life here on earth than those that are wicked. He had a desire for, for good to happen in his life. Now, that left unto itself is not a bad desire to want good to happen in your life. And if we submit that desire to a sovereign God who will rule and reign over our lives and give us what we need, that's a very good desire. But sometimes those desires become demands. Right? I, I want a good life. I'm not getting my good life. I, I have to have good life. In fact, God, you're missing out here. Don't you know what I deserve? It's the life that I want, not the life that you are prescribing for me in your sovereign, gracious, loving kindness. I must have what I want. Asaph's heart was hardening to God and to others. He saw what, was, what he thought was better than his situation. So one could say that his problem was envy. You know, prescribe a few verses on envy, memorize those, and you'll be fine. But I think the problem was much deeper than envy, Right? It goes much deeper to, to the heart, the root of that, that envy. I want what I want. The biggest problem is that Asaph didn't submit his desire to God. Now, I, I wear contacts or, or glasses, and I look, look out here, many of you do as well. And, you know, without my contacts in, my world is about this big. <laughs> uh, maybe some nearsighted people can relate to that, but I, I can't see much beyond about two feet from my nose. Uh, without my contacts on. And that's really where Asaph was here, his, too. His, his world was very small, all right? I, I look at what's right in front of me. I'm not looking at the grand plan that God may be having for me in my life. And I look at this smallness of, of my plan, and I'm not content uh, with this. You know, a long time ago, one of my children asked, when he was really small, he says, why does sin seem so fun? Well, what was his little problem, right? His world was really small. And in that smallness, right, we, we think that this is going to be fun. And we don't see the greater picture of God's plan. We don't see the warnings of Scripture that say the way of the transgressor is hard. Do you know that, that passage? It doesn't say the way of the transgressor sometimes might be hard, but it'll be really fun most of the time. Right? The Bible promises that the way of the transgressor is hard. And we look at this small world and we say, no, that can't be true. This is great. This is what I need for my life. We can be deceived into thinking that what others have is always better than what I have. 
and get mad at God for not giving us what we want? How do we often interpret whether God is good to us or not? I think sometimes it's the amount of, of ease in our lives. Uh, my life is going really well. There's a lot of ease in my life, so God is good. Or how much pleasure we're experiencing in our lives. How much control we have over situations, over people in our lives. A, a phrase that has developed in, in, more, I think, more recent times is, is this. My heart is full. Have you seen this phrase? Um, it, it's not a bad phrase at all. And I, I think it's often said in regards to the physical blessings of this world. But what if... What if we lose a loved one to heart disease? What if, what if you lose your job? What if you f- fail a class that's required for graduation? Or what if your spouse is unfaithful? The, there's a lot of pain there in just what I read, right? And I don't want to discount, discount that pain. In fact, the exact tonnage of pain that I know that's going on in the lives of Bethany Community Church can be crippling at times. And that's just the ones I know about, okay? But the great hope for the believer whose life is hidden in Christ, who has been brought from being a child of darkness and is now a child of light, can your heart be full? No matter what the circumstances around us, if you're experiencing the kind of pain that I mentioned here or you know of the pain of others, can you say my heart is full? And in fact, I have an illustration here. To represent this, this chair represents man or mankind. And this light here the wrath of God, which is upon man. In Romans, it says that the wages of sin is, is death, separation from God. And so as you look at this light, God's wrath is fully upon man. And this light is fully upon this, as this light is fully upon this, this chair, the chair engulfed in that light, just as man is fully engulfed in God's wrath. But if this represents Christ... Here, what happens to the chair when I do this? That wrath is completely taken care of. That wrath is fully upon Christ. Can we say that our hearts are full in the midst of the hardness? And again, I don't want to discount the suffering that is going on in your life, the struggles that are going on in your life, but... Can we say that our hearts are full? Hallelujah, we can. We can say our hearts are full. All we have is Christ. Let's continue this good news as we go to our second point. The turn toward God. Verses 15 to 17a. The turn toward God. Let's look at verse 15 here. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But then I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. One begins to see 
Asaph turn. God is at work within him and he doesn't want to portray God's people. So he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And the text does not state this, but I would assume that at the sanctuary of God or at the temple in verse 17 there, until I went into the sanctuary of God, see that in the beginning of 17, that as he went to the temple there, Asaph heard from wise men and women and maybe heard from prophets that helped him to see his idol and strengthen his faith. His faith. Perhaps the very psalms that he was leading, he was a song leader, right? And the very songs that he was leading were ministering to him and providing the answers that he needed. So Asaph begins to worship the Lord in corporate worship as we are gathered here today and he is drawn in. He's ministered to by the gathering of God's people. I think of Hebrews 10, verse 24, and let us together and, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of my favorite writers is Paul Tripp. He says, corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder that it's not all about you. You've been born into a life that is the celebration of another. As a believer, you have been born again into a life that is the celebration of another. Now, I remember earlier I spoke of my world getting small without my, my contacts on and my world shrinks. But, you know, when I put those contacts in, whew, I have access to a lot more. My world increases immeasurably. And if we lift our eyes to the Lord, our view of God and our view of the lost is sharpened. Being here, gathered with you, helps me to do that. I know that, that Pastor Mike chooses the, the songs we sing very carefully so that our eyes can be lifted to the Lord. And I come here and I see someone praying with somebody else out in the hallway and I, I remember my need and that I'm not as independent as I think I am. I come here and I hear of what adults and children are learning about in Sunday school and it challenges my heart if I am teachable to God. I come here and I see your, your weekly, the announcement sheet full of opportunities to serve and I'm challenged to look beyond my own nose. I come here and I hear the word of God preached and I'm challenged if I really do have an awe of God. Let me quote Paul Tripp again. He says, Corporate worship is designed to remind you that in the center of all things is a gracious and glorious God and that God is not you. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, says Matthew 5.8. I want to turn. I want to see God. And worship was the solution for Asaph. He was able to see things as they really are as he focused on God. And I think the application of, of this points us toward our need for corporate worship in our lives, but quite possibly also points us towards our need to just plain be in the awe of God. Be in awe of God. Which leads us to the advance, our third point, the advance to his glory. Verses 17b to 28, and then we'll, we'll come back up to verse 1 here. 
Now, Asaph's eyes were open, and God makes this advance into his heart. Now, I'm, I'm going to read this, and I, I said to my daughter, Addie, I said, I'm going to read this, this last portion of Psalm 3. It was kind of a lot of emotion, and I might embarrass you as, as my daughter. She's like, go for it, go for it. So I'm going to go for it, okay? I'm going to read this last portion of Psalm 73 as kind of, as I imagine Asaph writing this down and, and God just enrapturing his heart with who he is. And as he starts in here, you might think he's reveling in the destruction that the wicked are going to experience, but I don't think that's the case. I think he's saddened by it. So I'm going to read it in that manner. Okay, in 17b, I see Asaph kind of saying, wait, Wait a minute, I've been in the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly you, you set them to slippery, slippery places. You you make them fall to ruin. How How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as as phantoms. I pictured Asaph's heart pounding as his eyes are lifted, the grandeur of God, the wonderfulness of God, the reality of God, and his heart pours out in repentance here in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast, a beast towards you. But, oh Lord, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. No resources, God, do I bring here. My flesh fails My heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph's literally saying here, God, you're the strength of my heart. You're literally the rock of my heart. You are unchangeable. We think of the sorrow in the Bennett family. We we pray for the, the Tom Jones family, the sadness and Tim, the Tim Browning family, I could say name after name after name. There are so many other stories of pain and suffering within our church right now. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is enough. He is sufficient for me. Verse 27, for behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And then Asaph brings the psalm full circle here, providing the summary of the psalm in verse one. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In a sermon in 2012, Kevin DeYoung said this, the gospel tells us the truth about who we are 
certain sins become more difficult if we understand our position in Christ. If we are heirs of the whole world, why do you envy? If you are God's treasured possession, why are you jealous? If God is our father, why would you ever be afraid? If we are dead to sin, why live in it? So what advance does God need to make in your heart? God's goodness is not denied by the sufferings of the righteous. We can see things as they really are only when we're focused on God. God converts our confusion into comforting certainties about him. Let me quote William Barrick here. He says, Hence, we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through, he is happy. Because God, who is unchangeable, is his chosen portion. Though he, might, though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, of all his temporal enjoyments, yet God, whom he prefers before all, still remains and cannot be lost. And read that last sentence. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, of all his temporal enjoyments, yet God, who the believer prefers before all, still remains and cannot be lost. So have we seen the big idea in our passage today? As we lift our eyes to the Lord, he gives us a right perspective of himself, of ourselves, and of others. He's the only one worthy of pursuit. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of everything. Why? Because of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. So, this Christmas, who are you tempted to call to compare your take to their take? Let me encourage you to hang up the phone, gather with his church, and see his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are all together incredible, awesome, grand, and we humble ourselves before you and thank you for the glorious God that you are and we lay our earthly treasures at your feet knowing that they all came from you to begin with and we look at the treasures of those around us and we say you are better you are better in Jesus name amen